miles to the west, serving Salt Lake City, serving the surrounding metro region, and then also serve with the Utah-Idaho Southern Baptist Convention and oversee all of our mission work in Utah and Idaho. That's kind of what Brian was mentioning this morning when he mentioned that our territory covers Canada to Arizona. So from our, to give you a sense of how big that is, from our northernmost church to our southernmost church, it's 1,100 miles. Uh, and there's mountains in the way, so you can't just go straight to one church and drive to another church. And there's only certain parts of the year you can go to some of those churches, especially up in the panhandle of Idaho. But on behalf of the North American Mission Board, on behalf of all of our missionaries, let me say thank you. Because your gifts every week, part of those gifts come to the North American Mission Board. And then when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering at Easter every year, 100% of that money, every penny, goes directly to missionaries on the field. None of that has copy paper at our home office in Alpharetta, Georgia. None of it does any of that stuff. It all goes directly to missionaries to buy Bibles and to do block parties and to provide for rent at church buildings and to buy chairs and all those sorts of things. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm not just saying that because that's just something we say. Even though every North American missionary, every uh, missionary and every international missionary will tell you the same thing because without your support, we couldn't be there. So thank you very much for your gifts and for what you give and for your sacrifices there. We take those sacrifices very seriously. Every time one of our missionaries asks me for funding for something, some of you know this, I show them a picture of my grandmother in North Georgia who died in 2014, and I say to them, if you could ask her for the money, then we'll fund it. But if you couldn't ask her for the money, then we're not going to touch it because it's not my money to give out, it's hers. And we think about Southern Baptists all over the world who sacrifice, just like you do, so that we can be there, so we can work there. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what that person is willing to say yes to. You can tell a lot about a person who's willing to say yes to the University of Alabama. This person doesn't like to face trials or persecution or difficult times or anything of the sort because that's a person that just wants to be on a winning team. On the opposite side of that coin, you can tell a lot about a person who says yes to Clemson University because we have faced trials and tribulations and lots of persecution, very loosely defining that word, over the years. I, I sat through about 20 losing seasons, it felt like. I don't know that Alabama's ever had a losing season. Don't even answer that because you know what the answer is. You can tell a lot about a person by what they're willing to say yes to. You can tell a lot about a person not just in football or basketball or sports or things that ultimately don't matter, but you can tell a lot about a person with what they're willing to say yes to when it comes to religion, can't you? You can tell a lot about a person who says yes to being a Baptist. You just can. There are certain things in life that they're not willing to go there, and there are certain things in life that they're only going to go in another direction. You can tell a lot about a person who says yes to being a Buddhist or to being a Muslim or to being a Hindu. Or in the context where we live, you can tell a lot about a person who's willing to say yes to Mormonism. Utah's 70% Mormon, the state is. The town that Stacy and Jeremiah and I live in in the southwest corner of Salt Lake County is about 35,000 people, and it's 95% Mormon. Brian's been there. He can tell you all about it. You can tell a lot about those people just by knowing what they're willing to say yes to. And you can ask them, and you can ask them big questions. When I was a professor at Southern, I would teach students all the time about worldviews, right? Worldview is a big philosophical term that's really hard to define. There's some former students sitting here that I won't put them on the spot and ask them to define it because it's really hard, right? It's your view of the 
world. It's super hard to figure that out. But you can ask the four big worldview questions. Where do we come from? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution to the problem? And where are we going? Those are the four big questions. You might think, well, man, I could ask somebody those questions and I could really figure out a lot. A lot of times you can figure out a lot about a person just by how they answer the first question. Where did we come from? But there's a lot easier way to figure out something about somebody than to ask them these big philosophical questions. And the way that you can figure that out about them is to look at the songs that they sing. You can tell a lot about a person by the songs they're willing to sing, right? You can tell a lot about a person if you get in their car or their truck and the only thing playing is country. Now when I say country, I mean dead people. Florida Georgia line is not country. Right? Johnny Cash is country. Right? And y'all ready to take up an offering, right? We're done. You can tell a lot about a person if you turn on the radio and it's, it's nothing but rap. Or one of my favorite styles of music is 1970s rock. You can tell a lot about those people. What's interesting is, is when you get into matters of religion and you start to hear what people sing during their worship times or in small group times or with their family or whatever it may be. I want to read some words to you from a song that 70% of the people in my state sing on a regular basis. And when I come to the end, you'll know exactly what the song is about. 70% of the people in my state sing this on a regular basis. 95% of the people in the town where we live sing this on a regular basis. And just listen to some of these words and you can tell a lot. The first verse says this. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Jesus anointed that prophet and seer. Blessed to open the last dispensation, kings shall extol him and nations revere. Second verse. Praise to his memory, he died as a martyr. Honored and blessed be his ever great name. Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, plead unto heaven while the earth lauds his fame. It goes on, great is his glory and endless his priesthood, ever and ever the keys he will hold. Faithful and true he will enter his kingdom crowned in the midst of the prophets of old. The last verse, sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Earth must atone for the blood of that man. Wake up the world for the conflict of justice. Millions shall know brother Joseph again. And then this, hail to the prophet, ascended to heaven. Traitors and tyrants now fight him in vain. Mingling with gods, he can plan for his brethren. Death cannot conquer the hero again. You can tell a lot about a person by what that person's willing to say yes to. That's obviously a hymn from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, from the Mormons. It's number 27 in their hymn book if you want to look it up. And the hymn is simply called Praise to the Man. Now, you can look in the Baptist hymnal, and you won't find praise to the man. If you do, it's time to go out the door. You're going to find things like, in fact, you're going to find things like holy, holy, holy. That in the 91 Baptist hymnal was number one, the first hymn. And in the hymnal from the 70s, it was the first hymn. And from the hymnal from the 50s, it was the first hymn. And then a new one came out just a few 
years ago, and it was number two. And some Southern Baptists had a fit because number one was a responsive reading. Number two can't be holy, holy, holy. Number one's got to be. How are we going to find holy, holy, holy if it's not number one? Well, you look on the page beside it. It's not, you know, rocket science. But you're going to find holy, holy, holy. You're going to find amazing grace. You're going to find blessed be the name. That's the stuff you're going to find. You can tell a lot about a person by what they're willing to say yes to and by what they're willing to sing. And what's really scary is most bad theology in our churches does not come from the pulpit. It comes from the 30 minutes or 45 minutes before the pulpit even gets fired up. It comes in song. And praise to the man is one of those that we hear on a regular basis that gives you just about some of the worst beliefs that a human ever came up with. No self-respecting Christian would ever say praise to the man. Paul, the greatest missionary the church has ever known. He doesn't have a hymn written about him, does he? There are no songs about how great Paul was. Praise to Paul. Right, start at the first verse, maybe. Praise to Paul. The second verse gets kind of dark, and it's in a minor key, and it's about how Saul was a bad guy. And then the third verse kind of kicks up a little bit, and it's about a conversion. The fourth verse is in a nice major key, and everybody's ready to, you know, wave the American flag. And praise to Paul. It's almost like Lee Greenwood's ready to sing it. You can tell a lot about what people are willing to sing. So what is it that the church historically has been willing to say yes to and been willing to sing? Historically, in the text of Scripture, we get what the church was willing to say yes to and willing to sing, and it's found in the Psalms. So if you would with me tonight, turn to Psalm 77. We're just going to look at a few verses, and you know, that's the greatest lie ever told during the week, is when a pastor says, we're only going to look at a few verses, and the second greatest lie is we're almost done. So we're going to look at a few verses and we're almost done. Right, Psalm 77, we're actually going to look at about 15 verses in there. The, uh, the superscript here tells us it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph only wrote a handful of the psalms. David wrote the overwhelming majority of the psalms. But this one is included in here and it's, it's, it's fascinating when you start reading through it because I think a lot of us are right where Asaph was when he wrote this. So as we look through it, I want you to think about yourself, and especially in the first section of it we're going to deal with, man, it's like sometimes that's just me, but in the last section of it is where we need to be. Right, so here's what I want us to think about just for a few minutes. I want us to think about trusting God, about not giving up, about pressing on, just trusting in who God is and trusting that he has done enough. Now, why would a guy from Utah talk about this? Because this guy that lives in Utah and that lady that lives in Utah and our son that live in Utah and the other 70,000 Christians that live in Utah, and if you think that's a lot, there's 3 million people in the state and only 70,000 are Christians, 2% Christian. We have some counties that are less percentage Christian than places like Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. So why would a guy from Utah talk about trusting God? Because 70% of the people in my state think that God didn't do enough when Jesus died that they've got to do more. It's just not enough. And what I fear is that a lot of times as Baptists, as, as Christians, we think the same thing. That I've got to come and get the doors open. I've got to come and turn the lights on. I've got to serve on this committee or, or serve on that team or do this or do that because 
maybe, just maybe, if Jesus were to come back today, maybe I've not done enough. And Asaph here is going to tell us, yeah, he's, he's done enough. There's nothing more for us to do or to add to. In fact, if we try to add something to what God has done, we're actually taking away from what he's done. But Asaph starts out, man, he's tore up. I know I can say that in Kentucky and y'all get it, right? I don't have to define that. And I can say y'all too and I have to define that. That's kind of nice. We live in a place where if you say y'all and eat grits, there's immediate, you know, oh, I don't know about this person. Right? Let's look at Psalm 77. Look at verse number one. Asaph says, I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Stop right there. Asaph is not a charismatic. Don't think immediately, oh, wait a minute, he's some kind of Pentecostal. You know, he's going to be speaking in tongues before we know it, and there's going to be something going on. You know, Brian, the pastor of pain, talked about, uh, y'all will get that in just a second, pastor of pain, yeah. We used to call him the professor of pain when we were teaching together. Students often said that too. Um, you know, he's, Brian talked about this morning about the word faith movement, about your words actualizing what you want in your mind and just actualizing some crazy reality around you. Asaph is not one of those guys. If you look at the end of verse 1, he says, I cry out to God, yes, I shout. He says, oh, that God would listen to me. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like when you go through the valley of the shadow of death in your life that God is just not listening? Do you ever feel like you just, you've just gone through so much and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've sought after God and sometimes it's just like, oh, if he would just write something in the sky with his finger or just give me some sign, that would be enough. But it's just like he's not listening. It's like my prayers are stopping and there's a glass ceiling somewhere and they just won't push on through it. Look at verse 2. He says, when I was in deep trouble... I searched for the Lord. Now, you know what's sad about that is a lot of times that's the only time we seek after God, isn't it? When we're in trouble. It's almost like he's some kind of divine electrician or a divine plumber, divine fix-it man, who when we get into problems, we call 1-800-FIX-IT. And God just comes down with his magic wand and says, Bing, it's all done, don't worry about it. That's not what Asaph is getting in either. Look at the second part of verse 2. He says, All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. He's really going through it, isn't he? He's having a tough time. He's really seeking and searching. Verse 3, I think of God and I moan, the New Living Translation says. I think of God and I moan overwhelmed with longing for his help. Verse 4, you don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. You ever had a restless night because of something going on in your life? If you say no, you're lying. Because we've all been through it. We've all been through those nights where you just seem, it just seems like I just can't get the rest that I need because I'm dealing with this or I'm dealing with that and I just can't get the sleep I need. I'm, I'm so messed up, God. I, it's almost like I can't even pray. And it's not because God won't listen and it's not because you believe God won't listen. It's just that you're so upset. It just doesn't seem to come out. I'm just so upset. Verse 5. I love this one. The way the New Living Translation puts it says, I think of the good old days. How many of us think about that? 
Oh, my grandmother used to say all the time, if we could just go back to the good old days. Really? How were the good old days, Granny, in the 1940s? Remember that thing called World War II? That's not necessarily the good old days. Well, what about the 60s and 70s? Yeah, there was that big thing in Vietnam, and the whole country's torn up over Vietnam. That's not necessarily good old days. Well, what about the 1980s? Those were the good old days. Yep, because when I was in, when Brian was in college in the 1980s, I was still in elementary school. <laughs> and I don't have to take glasses on and off yet like he does, because I'm not that old, right? I just wear them all the time. So, you gave me an open mic, sorry. I don't get an opportunity to do this often. When I'm growing up in the 80s, I'm in elementary school, we used to have these drills, and the alarm would go off in the school, and we'd have to get underneath our desks. Why? Anybody remember? Nuclear attack from Russia, because those little wooden desks are going to protect you, right, when the nuclear bomb goes off. There are no good old days. There just aren't. The world goes through good times, it goes through bad times. He says, I long for the good old days, and... I think of the good old days. In the end of verse 5, he says, they're long since gone. They are gone. Verse 6, when, when my nights were filled with joyful songs. So what is he saying here when he's thinking about the good old days? He's thinking about those times when he felt like God was listening, when he felt like his prayers were making it through. And he says at the end of verse 6, I search my soul and I ponder the difference now. You ever done that? You ever thought to yourself, man, it felt like God was listening here, but now over here, it's like he's not listening more. Have I done something wrong? Have I sinned in some way so that he no longer listens? I tell you, when Jeremiah, when our son was first born, he was never around kids a lot, and we put him in kindergarten at Christian Academy. And as soon as we put him in kindergarten, his doctor told us, now, here's the thing. He's not been around kids a lot, so because of that, he's going to be a virus magnet. And we thought, well, that can't be that bad. Yeah, never think that, ever. We put him in Christian Academy, and his first year or so of life, he was our first year of kindergarten, he was in the hospital three times because he just got so sick. And the third time, I was just torn up. I mean, torn up. We had just come here to Fisherville. He's in the hospital. I remember Jeff coming to see us. And I looked at Jeff. Now, and at this time, I'd finished a Ph.D., right? You should be the guy who knows this is not what you're supposed to ask. I looked at Jeff, and I said, man, what have I done so that God is doing this to my son? What have I done? He was just fine a week ago, and now here he lays in the hospital, hooked up to all sorts of bells and whistles and all kind of stuff, and IVs going into him just to keep him going and keep him hydrated. And I'm thinking, what in the world have I done? What have I done wrong? Have I not done enough? To please God. Look at verse 7. Asaph kind of gets there. He says, has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Verse 8. Is his unfailing love gone forever? Has his, have his promises permanently failed? 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And then verse 10. And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. Man, it's almost like Asaph is in, he's not just in the valley of the shadow of death. He's almost at death. He's not in a shadow of anything. He is completely gone from the way this sounds. And I think a lot of times we get there because we just think, well, maybe if I just do this, it'll pull me out. Or if I do that, it'll pull me out. Or 
man, I've just been through so much. Maybe if I just do this one thing, it'll turn the corner and things will get better. But that's not the way it works, is it? You can help every little old lady that you find across the street, and guess what? Bad things are still going to happen to you. You might be helping that little old lady across the street and on your way back get hit by a bus. That's, that's just the way a sinful world works. You might think, well, I'll just stay in my house all the time. I'll never do anything. Well, that's not really a good way to live life, and that's not following the commandments of Scripture to go out and to share Christ with those around us. It's dangerous to be alive. There's nothing you can do to make it better, right? To get God on your side. Enough works you can do to get Him on your side. Yet in the state where I live, that's what people think. If they just do enough, they can get God on their side. And let me tell you where that gets us. Utah's the most religious state in the United States. Yet we are number one in the United States in teenage female suicides. We're number one in the United States in unmarried mom suicide rates. We're number one in the United States overall in the diagnosis of depression. We're number one in prescription antidepressants. We're number one in pornography downloads. And we're number one in plastic surgery. What does that tell you? What that tells you is, is that all these rules and all these regulations are dumped onto people so that they believe by doing all that stuff, they can get closer to God. But what do they realize very quickly? It doesn't get you anywhere, and you're still empty on the inside. So what do they want to do? They want to fix it from the outside in. So they get sad. They get really sad. And they go take a pill for it. They try to make themselves happy through pornography. They try to make themselves be like the Joneses through plastic surgery. And then when they realize none of that stuff works, they take their own life. In fact, there's a group on Facebook of now 300 or so-ish women in the area of Salt Lake where we live. All of those women want desperately to come out of Mormonism but are scared to death to come out because they're scared of what their husbands or their families will do to them. And it got so bad that Christmas of 2014, there was a post put up on Christmas Eve, and one of the ladies in that group posted, Stacy read it to me, posted that she's tired of having to do all this stuff and she wants out of Mormonism and she's going to do everything she can do to get out but she's scared to death of what her husband's going to do to her because her husband is abusive verbally and physically. She can't go to him and talk about all the concerns that she's got because then she'll become a second-class citizen. So she posted on this this Facebook group, I'm just going to go to a local park and swallow a bottle of pills and take my life. She went and did it. Providentially, though, there was a man on Christmas Eve there running in the park, and he saw her take that bottle and drop. And he called 911. They pumped her stomach and saved her life. That's what a religion of works will get you. A religion of God's not done enough. Let me just try to add to it and make myself feel better. Guess what? You can do all the stuff in the world, and you will never feel better about doing enough 
There's always something else you can do. There's always something more. You can always push further. You can always do more stuff. And that's the state of the area where we live. They're always trying to do more. They always want more. It's never enough. There's, I took Brian and Heather and showed them when they were there, what, now a year and a half ago or so. There's an intersection near our house with nine new home builder signs all pointing in the same direction. And they're all four and $500,000 houses, all sold before they're built. Because people there always want something better. If my, let's say Brian and our neighbors, and they go buy one of these new houses, well, now Stacy and I got to go buy one if we're a typical Utah. Because my neighbors said, I got to keep up with the Paynes. I got to keep up with the Joneses, and I got to keep up with the Andersons, and I got to keep up with all these people because it's never enough. You can never be satisfied if you're always looking to do something more and add something to what God has already done. It's never enough. But then comes verse 11, and the best word in the Bible. New Living Translation, the first word in verse 11 is but. There's your free seminary education for the night, no charge. What is the greatest word in the Bible? If that's a quiz question, the answer is but. Well, that's not very nice to say. Well, it's true. And the best two words in the Bible, and they appear together, are but God. But here in verse 11, Asaph gives us but. And he says this, after going through the valley of the shadow of death, look in verse 11 and see what he says. He says, but then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. Now, keep in mind when he's writing this. This is in the middle of the ancient world, middle of Old Testament times. It's kind of towards the end of 2 Chronicles, middle to end of 2 Chronicles when he's writing this, just time-wise. And he says, I remember all you've done. What is it that he's remembering that God has done? Well, let's see. God's created everything. God has led his people out of a nasty nation. He led them through an ocean. And for one or two days, they were in the desert, in the wilderness, with no food and no water. And the water came out of rocks. Now, I don't know about y'all, but in Utah, water doesn't come out of rocks. I, I lived in Kentucky 13 years. I'm fairly certain water doesn't come out of rocks here either. And food fell from heaven. And on the Sabbath, enough food fell so they wouldn't have to break any Sabbath laws. So they would gather it before the Sabbath. They would have enough to eat. He led them out of that into a land flowing, the text says, with milk and honey into a promised land and made them, fulfilled for them, one of the key covenant promises that he made to make them a great nation numbering more than the sands on the seashore or the stars in the sky. If you don't believe that, read the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is God saying, I told you so. All these things he's done. That's what Asaph is remembering. He's remembering God's faithfulness. And look at what he says in verse 12. He says, they're constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. When you go through this time in your life, or you go through a time when you think, I can add to what God has done. Maybe he needs my help a little bit. All you need to do is think back to what God did for you in Christ on the cross and realize what he's done is enough. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again. And God put the period on the sentence. 
done. And all you have to do is trust that that is enough. And he'll change your life. That's what you think back to. Look at verse 13. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? 14, you're the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. 15, by your strong arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Maybe you're saying to yourself tonight, no, no, God's not done enough in my life because it's just so hard and you have no idea how bad it is. You just don't know. You have no way to fathom how bad it is. Yes, but if you're a believer tonight, you can look back and you can be a charismatic tonight. The pastor, just don't even let him, don't worry about it. You can be a charismatic, you raise your hand, you can shout, you can say amen. Because of verse 15, by God's strong arm, he redeemed you from yourself. Because he did something you could never do. If that doesn't make you want to be charismatic right now, then nothing ever will. Nothing will. If as a believer that doesn't at least put a smile on your face or maybe make your heart skip a beat, then nothing will ever do that. I watched my son born. That was pretty cool. That made me excited. I went last year to Phoenix, or in January to Phoenix and watched Clemson get beat by five points by an NFL team called Alabama. That made me pretty excited not to watch him get beat, but just to see him playing in the West. Made me pretty excited. But it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It's nothing in comparison to knowing that we are redeemed. So the question we ask ourselves comes back to a song. Anybody know the song, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? You have to ask yourself, if you're redeemed, do you love to proclaim it? Now, I'm not talking about being the crazy Jesus person. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. In the same way, I'm talking about being the crazy Jesus person. You ought to be the person at your school or at work or among your family who every time you open your mouth, at some point in the conversation, if it's with a person you know is not a believer or may even have a question as to whether or not they're a believer, Jesus ought to come out. And not in a breaking, not taking the Lord's name in vain kind of way. People should walk away from you who are unbelievers in your family or your friends or your realm of influence and they should think, man, all that guy, all that girl talked about was Jesus. Why? Because he redeemed us as a people. And because he did it all. I remember the song, Jesus paid it all. All to what? Him I owe. Sin has left a... Crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Just trust him. Keep pressing forward. Do not believe the lie that you need to add to what he has done. Because it's impossible. That standard will never be met in your mind. There's always something more you can do. In our state, people believe that you must place your faith in Jesus, in their Jesus. You must repent of your sins. So far, so good, right? 
You must be baptized in order to be saved. And then you must do 17 additional things in order to merit eternal life in the highest of the heavens. 17 things. One of those things is giving 10% of your income every year, and that's checked with tax forms and tithing records. One of those things is being faithful to all the covenant promises that you make. Just think to yourself about your life and think about the covenant promises you made when you were saved and think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It starts with the easiest, with love, and ends with the hardest, self-control. I have the hardest time with self-control at stoplights and on the interstate, especially in Utah. 98% of my state is lost, and they drive like it. It is hard. Self-control is hard. And think back on every moment of your life and ask yourself the question, am I exhibiting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Every moment of every day since you've been a believer. And the answer is going to be a resounding no. And think about how you would feel, how low you would feel if you knew I just had to do enough stuff to exhibit all those things every moment of every day. Think about the pressure that's put on you. And make that salvific. So that if you don't do all those things every moment of every day, then you don't make it into heaven. And your family is putting the pressure on you to do all those things. And all the people around you are putting pressure on you to do all those things. And your religious leader, your bishop, your, your local leader is putting pressure on you to do all those things every day. And everything you hear in the media and everywhere is putting pressure to do all those things every single moment of every single day. What's your next course of action? I'm going to go take a bottle of pills. I'm done. I'm going to take something for depression because religion is killing me. I'm going to download pornography and try to escape my world because religion is killing me. I'm going to go have plastic surgery done so maybe I'll look better and feel better about myself because religion is killing me. I'm just going to go take my life because religion hurts too bad. Religion doesn't hurt. Religion kills. You can't fix it Fisherville from the outside in the only way to fix it is from the inside out and the New Testament's very plain Jesus says I am the way I am the truth and I am the life and no man no woman comes to the Father except through me now you might think man that's a really kind of exclusive message you're doggone right it is because the text says so. Well, that's kind of a childish answer. Well, then I'm childish. The text says so. Well, how does that message go over in Utah? Let me tell you, in the last three years, we moved there in July of 2013. In July of 2013, there were three church plants in Utah. Not just in Salt Lake, in Utah. Three. Running about 20 to 30 people each. Because of God's grace... And because of his blessing, now there are 26 in Utah, running about 100 to 120 each. And we're hoping that by this time next year, there will be about 45 in Utah. God is doing amazing, amazing things. Why? Because people are saying, 
what you're doing is not enough and it never will be. And only through Jesus can you ever find peace and reconciliation with the Creator. Just trust Him. We'd only been there a few months. We got a phone call from my dad one night, three days after my mom's 65th birthday. And my dad said, son, we're, uh, in fact, we were, it was during our Utah-Idaho Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. We were in Idaho Falls, Idaho. We're in Walmart, of all places. And my dad says, son, we've got your mom at an uh, urgent care center because there's something wrong. She's in a lot of pain, and, and they've found something, a mass inside of her. And over the next few weeks, they did some biopsies and determined she had cancer. And seven weeks later, she was dead. We moved in July. She was diagnosed in October. We went to South Carolina for 10 weeks. And the span of the first six months we were there, we lost my mom. You want to talk about the dark night of the soul? That's the dark night of the soul. When you think, man, God, I've done all I know to do. I've moved the only grandson on both sides of the family 2,000 miles further away from his grandparents, and you just took my mom. I was mad. And any honest person say the same thing. I was furious. I talked to Brian a lot through that. We've been through a lot, man. Talked to him a lot through that. Talked to my pastors in Utah a lot through that. But you go through it and you make it. And you know why? It's sure isn't because I did faith and repentance and baptism and 17 things. Because 17 wouldn't have been enough. You make it through because you know that Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. And because she was a believer, it made it all the easier. Fisherville, the more you do that God commands you to do, the more the devil's going to attack you. Because he's going to get upset. You're taking away paying customers. If your life is perfect, you need to re-examine what you're doing for Christ. If the devil's attacking you, then more likely than not, you're doing something right. Or a lot of things right. Just trust him. Share the gospel. Trust him that he will make the growth happen. Friends, family, co-workers, everybody. Trust him with your life. Because he's good. Because he's faithful. And if for no other reason, because he said so. Let's pray. God, we are thankful, Lord, for the night you've given us. Lord, for our time together. Lord, I want to thank you for Fisherville Baptist, Lord.